Welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie. That's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about our badass human who also happened to be a scientist. And we've got a really cool BA for you this week who could not be more different than Pat from last week. Literally polar opposite, in my opinion. Yeah, not, not anything like it. No cool stories about demons in the woods, so... No, there, there is a, a distinct lack of demons yeah. in, this, <laughs> in this episode, which is probably for the best. I don't know. Let's, uh, let's do some weekly business. We got an, I have an addendum that I want to go through, so Ooh. let's, yeah, so let's get started with, like, you know, the preliminary stuff. Okay. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at BA and Science. That's where we post our picks and source info for this episode. You all are used to that by now. If you're new, check us out. You can also email us at science at gmail.com if you've got something to tell us or show suggestions, which is very difficult to say, or whatever. You just want to say hi. Also, wherever you listen, remember to rate and review or favorite or like or tell your subscribe. friends about us or whatever. You subscribe. Yes, all those things because that really helps us out. Also, don't forget that we have a Patreon now. So if that's something that you want to be a part of, go to Patreon, search BA and Science, you'll find us there. Because uh, like many episodes, are, they are coming. It's going to be awesome. Boom. So any addendums from you this week? I have nothing, which I feel sad about. Because normally, I have addendums. You have and I all. like having addendums. Addenda. 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 We decided it was addenda. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I got nothing. Well, I have one. It's not very interesting. <laughs> Remember last week when we talked in Paracelsus episode about how his mom was a Bond woman, not Bond girl, Bond woman. Right. That's Gabby, different. Which is not the same. Yep. And we were trying to, we we're trying to really like nail down what the difference was because like from a slave versus a slurf versus a bond woman, blah, blah, An blah. An indentured servant. Yeah. All those things. Yes. All those things. Okay. okay. So I did a little bit of, and, and this took me quite some time to sort through because it was, it's, it, this is something apparently that's not easy to nail down, but okay. So there are different kinds of enslaved peoples, right? You might have some slaves who were really good at certain trades and you might have certain slaves who were just laborers. Mm. Your serfs are going to be laborers typically, okay. but, but maybe not. Like when you're talking about slaves, they mm -hmm. don't, that, that has a, the connotation there is common laborer. Serfs like the, the Israelites building the pyramids for Pharaoh. Slaves, common laborers. Okay. But were they though? Because the idea of a bondman or a bondwoman deals with artisanal capabilities or skilled functions. So you might have a like I, I read somewhere that um, some of the slaves that worked on certain plantations in the United States during the pre-Civil War era one guy had sent his chef to be trained by a French chef. So he had a French trained chef bondman working as his cook. And so if you were a bondman or a bondwoman, you had extra skills. So okay. again, as a serf where you were connected to the land, mm -hmm. you might 
be a common laborer, but also you might be a cooper. You might make barrels. Mm. You might be a blacksmith. And, and so you wouldn't necessarily get paid to do those things because that's not how this works, but you would live on, you would live there and you would do your trade mm -hmm. and that would be your life and you would be taken so, care of. Because so kind of, of like Joshua in the Charlton Heston 10 commandments, he was like a little bit specialer. Exactly. That's why I said like, kind of in because if like you're a stone cutter that's you know if you're you know carving you know on an obelisk or whatever then yes it's that that's more like a bondman than a slave okay so in 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 any country where you would have bond people bondmen or bonds women you would definitely treat them better than common laborers because chances are they have, they have skills and they're not skills that are necessarily easy to replace. And they do mm. cost money to train someone in like it would take money and time to apprentice someone to learn to be a Cooper, for instance. So you wouldn't, it would make more sense to treat them better mm -hmm. because it's more of an, it's a different kind of investment. Okay. So again, I don't endorse the practice, any of that, any of <laughs> that, but what that's what was going on at the time. So when Pat's mom, when we say she was a bond woman, she had some kind of extra skill or capability or whatever. Possibly she was a weaver, but I couldn't find, I, like, it was really hard to find any information on that. I don't think I have access to the right, like, scholarly things or whatever, but, mm, okay. but possibly she was a weaver or something like that. And so that's a skilled thing. And so she wasn't getting paid for that work, but she probably got room and board. You know what I mean? And, and she wasn't like, it wasn't a, a buying and selling thing. She belonged to the Abbey at the Abbey as a bond woman. Gotcha. Okay. So, so that is my agenda. Now we know a little bit more about what a bond woman, not a bond girl is. So that's your addendum. That's my addendum. Just one. All right. So if you don't have any, then I'm going to say, let's take a break and jump right into it. Well, I have the bio again this week, and it was super intense to research because this BA has a lovely autobiography and a million books written about her, and she even, she even has her own textbooks and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I have, I have some fun info about some of the sources that I used, but I'll talk about that when we get there. Brenna, go ahead and give us our quote and tell us who we've got this week. Okay, so this person, again, lots of quotes to ch choose from, but I went with to open us up. I have never doubted the wisdom of my decision to give bacteriology up and devote myself to work, which has been scientific only in part, but human and practical in greater measure. So that is from a book called Exploring the Dangerous Trades by our BA of the week, Alice Hamilton who earned the nickname the Tinkerbell of Industrial Medicine, if you notice uh, our episode title. Yes. Which is so very Alice Hamilton name. is where it's at today. It is where it's at today. And I, I want to start off by saying that we are almost 25 episodes into this podcast. Wow. I, right? And I'm seeing a pattern. We've got our brawls and our heavy hitters and BS episodes, like our special episodes. Right. Mm -hmm. But the regular episodes deal with someone from one of two BA categories. 
So you've got the Tico Brahes and the Paracelsuses. They're outrageous, larger than life, and shake up the world at large and the world of science and all of it. Then there are the people like Dr. Dan or Mary G. Ross, who are interesting, unique people who shake up societal norms and mm -hmm. the world of science. Alice Hamilton is more like a Dr. Dan or a Mary Ross. Yeah. She didn't employ a dwarf like Tico. Right. She didn't. No, no drunk moose. No drunk moose. She didn't consort with the devil as far as we know. <laughs> didn't ride a white horse given to her by Satan. Inexplicably given her by Satan as we <laughs> discussed at length in the last episode. Um, I'm not also, over it still. I know. I, I don't think we'll ever get over it. She also didn't make enemies with every single human being she ever met, like Paracelsus mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. And Tico didn't have lots of friends at the end either because he might have been poisoned. Remember that whole discussion? Oh, yeah. So this Alice is very different from all of these people and like quite the opposite of Tico and mm -hmm. Pat, okay? So let's talk about her life, okay? Alice was born in New York City on February 27th, 1869. At six weeks old, her parents moved to be by Daddy Hamilton's parents in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Alice was raised there. So she's born in New York, but she's like from Fort Wayne is how people will talk about it. Okay. America in 1869 is just post-Civil War. Women could not vote. Civil rights wasn't a thing yet. Yep. Reconstruction is happening in the South, which was not great. Not a good time. No. no. Um, and the U.S. was moving kind of full speed ahead into the second Industrial Revolution. This is a very, very long topic to discuss, and I'm not going to talk about yeah. a lot of it here. <laughs> but let's hit some high points. Railroad travel became the thing. If you were going anywhere, it was railroads. There was a railroad boom at this time. But that, and that means that coal and steel production skyrocketed. Lots of industry was becoming mechanized too. And all of that means factories. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of factories popping up everywhere. Lots of healthy, safe factories where the life and well being of the worker was always the number one priority. <laughs> yeah, just, no. I'm, I'm just kidding. Factories were awful. This was the time before labor laws and industrial health and safety, which put that in your satchel because yeah. mm -hmm. we'll be coming back to that. Pretty much like the whole episode. It, that's the theme of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Alice came from a very wealthy family. Her grandfather on her dad's side had moved to Indiana from Ireland when he was young. And Fort Wayne was like basically an outpost at the time. So he opened up a store there and dealt with whoever was there, which was mostly Native Americans at the time. And they really liked him and respected him and got, they got along real well. He and his wife, Aurora, who was Alice's granny, had 11 children. Not all what of them lived doing? to adulthood, but still, she yeah. gave birth to 11 human beings. Mm, no, thank you. No, thank you. Immediately, no. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When he wasn't getting his wife pregnant, Grandpa Hamilton became a Gross. railroad investor and opened his own bank. And you may have heard it said before, but listen, if you own the bank, you're, you are the money. Okay. That's. Are you Scrooge McDuck in a big vault full of gold coins swimming through them? Yes. hundred percent. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Think, think of it like that. Okay. He made pots of money. Okay. And so that's the money that Alice would grow up around. Now this money would not last forever, which I'll get to, but 
generally they were definitely upper class. They lived on Hamilton property with at least one other like subset of the Hamilton family. So it was kind of like a commune. Like there was the big house and there was the white house and the red house and they were all like there together. And there were like eight cousins that were all really close in age. And Alice was part of this eight cousin group. Mm -hmm. So they went everywhere together and they didn't really need other friends. They had, they had everything they kind of needed right there. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have found friends. I mean, if they went to school, they might've had friends, but they didn't go to school. They were homeschooled. Woo, yay! (laughs) I'm always pleased when I think of how many of our BAs have really been homeschooled because there's been quite a few of them yeah true it's it's thrilling but anyway Alice and her four sisters got an excellent home education um, not because the family didn't want the girls to go to school like for social reasons like they didn't it's not that they didn't like the schools or they didn't want them to be around the other people but mom and dad had very specific ideas about education and they weren't convinced that the that public school was the best way for the girls to learn So mommy Hamilton was not a fan of the school day being so long because it was from nine to four. And she's like, that's forever. I don't need to be in school that long. Something with which I happen to agree. So just like, if I can get a like tiny soapbox, it is too long. But anyway, daddy Hamilton didn't like the curriculum. He was Mm. like, it's too much arithmetic in American history because he didn't care about either subject. He was like, yeah, I care about that. You don't need to learn that, which he is not correct about, but that is fine. Yeah, it feels like arithmetic is kind of, kind of important. Of, of all the maths, arithmetic is kind of the one that you're like the one work. that most people are expected to be able to do on a pretty daily basis. Yes. So yeah, he was he Which was they very, can't believe no. me they can't. Well, I know. At any rate, Alice describes her and her sister's education as uneven with serious omissions. That is a direct quote from her autobiography, which is one of my sources for this. Okay. Alice got herself through basically algebra in math, but like a day governess came and taught them that stuff. Cause they did have mommy Hamilton was smart enough to realize that you're going to be, have to be able to count and deal Mm. with money, you know? (laughs) So they did get a little bit of that. Um, But the Hamilton sisters mostly learned languages, literature, history, and languages were the only ones with formal instruction. Daddy Hamilton taught them Latin and mommy Hamilton taught them French. And the servants taught them German. Most of their servants were German, so they learned German from them. Yeah, that makes sense in the Midwest. It it does. It makes a lot of sense being in the Midwest. Everything else they got from just reading. So it was a very, like in the homeschool world, it was very, we would think of it as unschooling where you don't have a set curriculum. You just say, what do you want to learn about? And then you just collect as many books as you can on that and read voraciously. And that's how you learn. So Alice talks a lot about her sisters in the beginning of her autobiography. And she mentions how reading was important to them in varying degrees. That was kind of like a big thing for the family is their connection with reading and literature. Her older sister by 18 months, um, her name is Edith, was a voracious reader, as I mentioned, and read literally anything she could get her hands on. She adored the classics and memorized lots of poetry. Alice remarked that she likely learned, uh, there's this poem by Keats called The Eve of St. Agnes. And it's made up of 42, 42 nine line stanzas, which is stinking long. Can we do the arithmetic to figure out how many lines that is? 
No, Alice. Hamiltons couldn't. Daddy, Daddy Hamilton. No, absolutely not. This is the Hamiltons. We don't do arithmetic over here. That's for that's for other people. But it does sound long. It's very know. long. So Alice said that she probably learned the whole thing just from listening to Edith recite it because Edith did all the time. Edith was a fabulous storyteller and she often told parts of stories to Alice and the others on their long daily walks and then wouldn't tell them how the story came out. She's like, no, you have to go read it for yourself to find out. And sometimes Alice wouldn't, sometimes Alice wouldn't. Now, why am I talking about Alice? Edith? This is Alice's podcast. Well, she's Edith Hamilton. The Edith Hamilton, the freaking Edith Hamilton, queen of all mythology, who literally wrote the book on mythology. I still read my personal copy of Edith Hamilton's mythology, and she's probably single-handedly responsible for my personal and deep interest in mythology of all kinds. And lots so of people what you're saying say is she would be rolling in her grave if she had seen Troy. She'd be furious. She'd be furious. And Absolutely. see, Troy is still relevant in this episode. It absolutely is because Edith would be over here like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong too. All of this is wrong, this is awful. Who did this? Why didn't they ask me? I could have consulted here. Yeah. They could have used it. They, they could, well, to this day, she is one of the most renowned classicists ever. And that's Alice's sister. So, so the whole family is kind of like, you know, a big deal. Kind of a big deal. Oh, because we I haven't even gotten to some of the best parts about her family yet. Oh. Uh-huh. Tell me more. Well, Alice's sister would grow up to be a big deal. And Alice herself would become a big deal. She's a BA. She's a BA in our episode. So there's like, that's, you know, kind of a big deal. But they also grew up around big deal people. As I just said, that's not all. My favorite personal example is that Granny Hamilton was besties with a woman named Susan. Sometimes Susan would come through town and give speeches and she'd stay at the Hamilton's house. BTW, Susan's full name is Susan B. Anthony. What? No. Yes, Susan B. Anthony was like besties with Granny Hamilton. And so when she would come through town on speaking engagements, she needed a place to stay. She'd stay at the Hamilton house. So wow. uh, yeah. So, so for those of you who maybe are not from the United States listening to this or people who have not yet taken this part of American history, Susan B. Anthony is in a lot of ways synonymous with the women's suffrage movement. Correct. So she's a huge, hugely, hugely famous. That makes woman. sense because I won't ruin anything really, but um, I did read, I couldn't not read about some of Alice's views about politics and some of those issues of the time. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot more sense knowing she was, uh, you know, hanging with Granny and her friends. Yeah. So Granny's pals were big deal suffragettes. So yes. So yeah, there, the, 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 her family is so connected to people whose names we just know. It's, it's amazing. And I know I'm spending a lot of time talking about Alice's family, but the entire family really are badasses. And I really think that understanding who she came from is for Alice the best way to understand why she became the woman that people remember. So I'll finish up my discussion of her early years with a little more info about her mother, because like is often the case, mom had a big influence on her daughter. Alice's mother spent some of her teen years in Europe. And Europe has a very different attitude about 
pretty much everything. And so she didn't feel bound by the Victorian convention, especially in the Midwest in the oh late 1800s. So she would discuss taboo subjects very frankly and without embarrassment, even when people, oh well, because people would tell her that's not something that ladies talk about. And she was like, but, but she asked me what to do about her cheating husband. What am I going to say? Like, you know what I mean? So it was, it was things like that, that ladies did not, we don't talk about this. And she's like, why? That's silly. And so then she did. Alice remembers that she had a quote, passionate love of freedom, end quote, and taught Alice and her siblings that personal liberty is the most precious thing in life, which is something else that I happen to agree with. Yeah, I like liberty. I love liberty. It's li- it's personal liberty is really super awesome. It's my I favorite. Like that. It's my favorite yeah. thing. So I feel like I I feel like she and I we might not have agreed on everything, but I feel like Alice and I would have had some some stuff in common with the, with the way that we see parts of the world. Right, like when the times that she wanted to just become a fascist and stuff, you know. Yeah, those times we would. Yeah. I because yeah. I, I am very much not a fascist, yeah. but I do believe yeah. in personal liberty. Yeah, so, yeah. So. But because she felt strongly about personal liberty, Mommy Hamilton, she also felt that society's problems were a little bit more personal, as in like everyone needs to be a part of the solution. So one of the quotes that came up in a lot of books about Alice Hamilton is the quote from her mom that kind of stuck with Alice through her whole life, where her mom said, essentially, there are two kinds of people in the world, people who see a problem and wonder who's going to fix it, and people who see a problem and set out to deal with it. And which one of those are you going to be with the understanding that you want to be the kind who fixes problems, not just expect someone else to do it. Alice's life went on like this well into her teenage years. She would spend the school year learning at home and summers were, they went on vacations to Mackinac Island in Michigan, which is gorgeous. So she, and she loved it up there. She loved Michigan. When Alice turned 17, she went like off to school for the first time. Girls in the family traditionally attended Miss Porter's school in Farmington, Connecticut, which sounds very like fancy. Sounds fancy. It's very fancy. So Alice went there. She remembers that the whole system in the school was elective. So she could just avoid her weak subjects, namely math and science. Interesting. Which is weird. She said point blank that she had no real science education at all when she was young, nor did she have an interest in getting one. Okay. okay. Like she asked her dad about physics once because like one of her older cousins was studying at school and she's like, I want to learn physics. And he was like, see that encyclopedia right over there? It's all you need to know right there about physics. Go for it. Mm-hmm. And Alice, Alice remarked later, like that was wildly unhelpful, but you know, that was, that was what it is. All right. In every source that I read, Alice's time at Miss Porter's wasn't important in terms of education, but it was very important in terms of personal relationships. Alice got to meet people who weren't Hamiltons and who had grown up very differently than she had, because remember, she had never done that to this point. This, that was totally a new thing for her. There wasn't room for snobbery, and the girls formed what they all later would describe as lifelong friendships while they were there. Additionally, and I think this is important to help us see Alice clearly, the school had a very New England vibe. And again, for people who are not from the United States, that's, it's no nonsense. It's respect for intellectual things. There's integrity, self-control, clear thinking. 
all of those things were very much promoted at the school. And it kind of became a part of Alice's personality. After Alice graduated, she went back home to decide what to do with the rest of her life. Well, Alice wanted to travel and help people more than anything. She loved going places, but she wanted to be useful when she was there. So she was like, I'm going to be a doctor. It's my best bet. She could go anywhere and be useful as a doctor. Plus, nurses got bossed around, and she didn't really want to get bossed around, which, same girl. She specifically said it had nothing whatsoever to do with the love of science. Did you see that when you were? Yeah, I actually, she wrote in Exploring the Dangerous Trades, I chose medicine not because I was scientifically minded, for I was deeply ignorant of science. I chose it because as a doctor, I could go anywhere I pleased to far off lands or to city slums and be quite sure that I could be of use anywhere. Yep. So, so that was, so she was like, okay, doctoring it is going to do this. But to be a doctor, you have to get into medical school. And to get into medical school, turns out you do need a rudimentary science education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She did not have those skills. Mm -hmm. So she went about getting them. She found a high school teacher in Fort Wayne who was willing to tutor her in physics and chemistry. And then she took like a local anatomy class at a clinic in Fort Wayne. And I relate that to like a community college experience where she would have had like some clinical like Here's, here's where your bones are. Here's where your organs are, because turns out that's important for a doctor. Paracelsus looking at you. Yeah, seriously. Right. So she and her sisters were going to have to get jobs at some point because the family wealth was not going to last forever. You know, so all of the people in the Hamilton family worked though. They were not idle rich. They did work and that's how their wealth kept going. So all the girls were planning on working, but dad wanted to, daddy Hamilton wanted to spend his money wisely. So he saw her getting all of these extra science classes and like figuring out how she was going to become a doctor. And he saw that she was totally serious. And he said, okay, I'm going to pay for you to go to university because that's what you need to do. She had two choices as a woman in the late 1800s to go to school. There was a school in Pennsylvania, which does not exist anymore, or the mm -hmm. University of Michigan, which very much mm -hmm. does exist because mm -hmm. just ask my husband and my son when football season is on. Mm -hmm. She chose U of M and, it, and honestly, that was really the best option for her. And I, we've discussed this kind of a lot, especially last episode when we were talking about Pat, but medical training throughout the ages wasn't always what you would expect. Right. Namely, talking about treating people was more important than lab work and seeing patients and all that kind right. of thing. U of M had German professors who actually spent a lot of time with their students in labs and encouraged questions. Mm -hmm. She was one of 13 women in the school at the time. And they were all in class together. Like she, they were actually allowed to have classes with the men, which was also kind of a new thing in the United States at the time. But the women had to sit on one side and, and ew cooties. Because ew cooties. And <laughs> we absolutely do not have anatomy class together because. Oh, we can't talk about human anatomy with, you with know. boys in the room. Oh my. Giggling and blushing. And, and blushing. And maybe, <laughs> maybe someone might like, listen, if you're going to look at a lady's ankles because she's dead, you're going to do it not in the presence of other ladies because that's just oh untoward. Oh boy. Yes. So despite the realities of the time. Um, she had a, she had a really good 
education and a really good experience at Michigan. In her last year there, she was on this guy named Dr. Doc's staff. I like that his name is Doc Doc, personally. Dr. It's Doc. almost as good as Doc Ock, I guess. It's almost as good. It might be better. I don't know. Dr. Doc was one of the lecturers on medicine. And she like would go on rounds with him and she functioned like more than a medical student, but less than a resident. So it was that kind of feeling. Dr. Doc was an early adopter of using lab work to diagnose and treat patients. It was still somewhat novel at this time to look at someone's fluid, like take a swab from someone and look at their fluids under a microscope and then diagnose them. But turns out that this was what was fascinating to Alice. Pathology was her jam. She loved everything about the whole subject. She wanted to pursue it and just not go into medical practice because she didn't really think that that was going to be something she wanted to do, which I get that too. Mm -hmm. Dr. Doc told Alice that she needed to at least do a year being an actual doctor though, so that she was more well-rounded and she would be taken more seriously. So she needed to get an internship and there were very few available to women, unsurprisingly. She spent, uh, she had one little one in, in Minnesota that was not a great situation, but then she spent nine months at the New England Hospital for Women and Babies near Boston. And that wasn't awful. She really liked that the hospital had a dispensary. So like a place where you could pass out, you know, prescriptions and stuff. And it was actually in a poor section of the city. So it was serving a different class of people, people who might not have otherwise had access to medical care. She worked with people of 13 different nationalities that made every day different and unique. And it was an adventure. She described it as an adventure. She saw that as a definitely an advantage and something very desirable. She actually got out of when, when she left there, she had been, she had a patient who had given birth and the baby was healthy and everything was fine. And the mom was so young and so whatever, and the mom died. And that really affected Alice for a very long time. And I, and I wondered if later in life that's put her off having children altogether mm. because it, women still died all the time in childbed. Like we didn't get that figured out till quite a bit later. Mm -hmm. So I really think that that might've had something to do with it. But at any rate, she's got a year of medical practice under her belt. Now she needs to study a year in Europe because no one's going to take her seriously in bacteriology and pathology if she didn't mm -hmm. study in Germany, because that is where it was. Mm -hmm. Now at the time, Germany wouldn't give women a degree. Mm -hmm. She and Edith went on this trip together because Edith actually needed a year in Europe for her work as well. So mm. she wasn't studying the same things there. Obviously she was Obviously. studying, you know, mythology and the classics and all that, but they went together. They studied in Leipzig and Munich, but they were required to be, um, it's described as invisible. Alice notes, this is a quote from her. Life in Germany in those days was very pleasant, though sometimes exasperating for an American. I had to learn to accept the thinly veiled contempt of many of my teachers and my fellow students because I was at once a woman and an American, therefore uneducated and incapable of real study, end quote. So that's how they saw her at the time, which had nothing to do with her. It's just what they thought of Americans. Mm -hmm. Now, Munich was better than Leipzig, but she said that she was continually reminded that she was a woman and therefore inferior. Mm -hmm. She told a story that one day, did you see the story about the opera? 
I did. Yeah. Yeah. So one day she goes to the opera and she had, and like the opera was this, was basically like going to the movies. Anybody could go. It was happening all the time. It wasn't for like only wealthy mm-hmm. people. And, but you, it was like free open seating. You had to like get in and get your seat and stake it out because there was no assigned seats. So she went to the opera one day and she had managed to grab a front row seat. And she said only to have some giant hulking German pick her up under her arms from behind and physically move her so that he could have her seat. And like, if that was me, I would have caused an international incident. You would have read about that in the papers. (laughs) Yeah, that was, Mm, yeah. Not not a great moment for that. Not a good look. But anyway... Once her year studying ended, she came home and actually got a job at Johns Hopkins Medical School for a while and was terribly pleased that the men didn't look at her like she was a freak, but just accepted that she was working there. So America was a little bit ahead in those in that respect. Very different from Europe. But she only spent a year there. In 1897, she got a job teaching pathology at the Women's Medical College of Northwestern University in Chicago. She was very excited about this. She really wanted to go to Chicago, partly because of her job. I mean, she was looking forward to that, but also it was because of where she was going to live. There is this place there called Hull House, and it was run by a woman named Jane Adams. Mm-hmm. I need to go down a quick rabbit hole to tell you about settlement houses, because that's what Hull House yep. was. And I didn't, I had never heard of this. I didn't know what this was. You haven't heard of Hull House? I had never heard of Hull House before. Oh, okay, cool. What context did you hear about it in? History I don't know. Class? But when I like read about Jane Adams and Hull House, I was like, oh yeah. So settlement houses were large houses where upper and middle class, well-educated people would go and live all together. It's like kind of a dorm. The houses were set up in very, very, very poor urban areas. Usually they were where there were high um, immigrant populations. The residents would pay rent to live there and, and provide various services to the community. There would be English and citizenship classes, daycare, healthcare, that kind of stuff. And all of this was with the goal of helping the immigrant population in the surrounding neighborhood have the ability to assimilate into American culture. The ability to come become an American and be on the same page culturally is what gives people the best chance at pulling themselves out of poverty. Jane Addams and Hull House was the first such house in Chicago, and certainly the most famous, as we, you know, Brenna's heard of it, so probably <laughs> some other people have too. It exists today as a museum. It's Somebody so- out there, please tell me I'm not the only one that's heard of it. Now I feel like I'm the, like, the weird one. No, you're probably not, really. This is, but I don't read historical fiction or nonfiction. I'm like, so I, this I is- feel like I learned about it in, in like a history class, though, too. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, mm-hmm. someone, someone let us know. Is yes. this a thing people this know? Thing people know. Dad doesn't count. Dad and mom don't count because they just no. know things. Because they know things and that's not, I don't want to get Etruscan on this. That's not, <laughs> I don't, I don't want that to happen. So, okay. It's an, it's, it's a museum today. Like you can still go visit it today and whatever. Alice and like, if you go on their website, Alice, our Alice Hamilton is mentioned as one of the quote impressive residents that worked and lived there. Mm-hmm. And like a quick side note about Jane Adams, she went on to be the second woman in general, and I believe the first American woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize for mm. her work with settlement houses. So she's a big deal. And Alice knew about her and Hull House. Like she had heard about the work that Jane Adams was doing. And she was 
desperate to go live and work there. And as fate would have it, there was a need for a medical resident just at the time Alice was going to Chicago and she managed to get a place at Hull House. There was no shortage of work to be done there and Alice kind of got right down to business. Besides her regular work, like teaching at the university, mm -hmm. she established a well baby clinic at Hull House and saw children and their mothers. And she worked to teach them about nutrition and contagious diseases and all those kind of things. And oh, like give your kids a bath in the winter, mm -hmm. which was not a thing they did. Babies would be sewn into their clothes in the winter what yeah, yeah some of the things I read I was like are you serious so so wait so Patrick, how do they change their diapers excellent question I didn't <laughs> I didn't look it up I was just like ew and and so Dr. Alice was like hey alternatively you could not do that and your babies will probably live longer and they did which people were thrilled about Alice also began to get experience with the men and women who worked in the various industries in Chicago because Chicago was highly industrialized at this point. Lots mm -hmm. of factories, those fabulous factories we mentioned at the beginning, they were super mm -hmm. safe. Alice, ever curious, started talking to these people and more for just treating them for their medical issues. She just wanted to know about their lives. So she heard stories of what the work environments were like and observed that many people who worked at like a certain place or this other area, eventually all developed the same health problems as each other. And so this is what kind of sets her down the path of she wants to figure out why and of course what to do about it. So I'm gonna skip all of that part of her life because that's Brenna's section. She's gonna tell us all about what happened in terms of what, you know, industrial health and safety. That's the theme today. Mm -hmm. So she dealt with dangerous trades for quite some time. But then a long time, a, oh, a very long time. Like I'm fast forwarding through most of her life now. Now she's in her fifties. Right. So, okay. What we're going to pick up back with her in the fall of 1919. All right. That's when I'll she fill in some gaps. Oh, the, the whole big gap, because there's yeah. so much that happened, yeah. but it's all science. I got you. So she began her position at Harvard in the fall of 1919. She was working for the department of labor at the time, mm -hmm. but Harvard had a problem. Industrial medicine was suddenly super important thanks to the war, which I bet yeah. you're going to talk about. We got to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and everyone knew that Alice was the best person to teach it. Men, women, everyone acknowledged that if there's some, if you want to talk about industrial medicine, you talk about, you talk to Alice Hamilton, period. Mm -hmm. Harvard was the best. So naturally they wanted Alice to go work there and teach it because that would get more people there and et cetera. And the board was more than willing to cast aside decades of tradition and hire Alice, a woman, to teach during first semester. And then she could like stay at Hull House and keep doing her work for a labor department like the rest of the year. It was just like a one semester deal. Yeah. And she was super excited to take the job because it was like, she said, I don't, here, here's the only way that I can take this position. They're like, cool, whatever you want. And she said, oh, well then great. I'll be right there. And, and made it happen. Because she literally, and I'm using it correctly, uh -huh. wrote the book on industrial health and industrial medicine. Yes. Like, literally. Oh, li literally, that's the book she wrote, which yeah. we're going to talk about. Alice, being the kind of person that she was, was even very chill with the ridiculous informal stipulations that came with her appointment to Harvard. 
Namely, she was not allowed to use the Harvard Club because it was for dudes and they didn't have a entrance for females. So you can't, you just can't. Is a Harvard Club like any, like when you say a club, I think of like in England where you had all the clubs and the- Like whites? Yeah. Is like it like that, that kind of but Harvard Club? Was it in Harvard? Um, yeah. So yes, whites is, that is a good way to think about the Harvard club. So they okay. didn't have an entrance for girls, so you can't get in here. Okay. Sorry, not sorry. It's kind of how they were. Mm-hmm. Um, also, she couldn't insist on her quota of football tickets. I mean, let's be honest. Is Harvard football really that exciting? Actually, yes. Back in the, in this. All time, right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Back then. In this time you did want to get Harvard okay. football tickets. So, and that would have been a deal breaker for me, possibly. And of course the people that worked there were naturally suspicious. Like, what was she like? Was she mannish? Was like, and someone actually asked that question. Oh, I, yeah. I'd like to take this opportunity to add a little clarity to the question, this particular question of misogyny. People hate change. I really believe the reason that they were skeptical of Alice honestly had more to do with the fact that changes were being made rather than to the actual nature of the change. So mm-hmm. it wasn't personal. And it wasn't even necessarily that she was a woman. Things just were changing and people just don't like change. Mm-hmm. And Alice pointed out quite sassily, if I may say, that while she was the first woman on the faculty, she's not the first one who should have been the first one mm-hmm. on the faculty. There were other women who should also have been on the yeah. faculty. Yeah. And as sassy as she was, she was honestly respected and liked by pretty much everyone. That's where that name Tinkerbell comes in. She was just a delight. Hmm. Yeah, she was just a really nice person. From everything I read, nobody ever had a bad thing to say about her. Mm -hmm. She was just, she treated people with dignity. She was respectful and kind and helpful and just people wanted to be around her. And even the people who had lots of reasons not to like her, which you might talk about some of those issues, they Mm -hmm. were totally cool with her. And I think that that was her badass superpower. Like if we had to give, like if we had to name the Hmm. one thing or all of our BAs, it's like they're, this is what makes them who they are. I really do think that it was her diplomacy and empathy because it was unmatched. Alice bought a house in Hadlime, Connecticut. And I hope I'm saying that right because it, the spelling, quite frankly, is ridiculous, but I'm going with Hadline, Connecticut, um, around the time that she started in Boston at Harvard, at Harvard, and she made it kind of into the family's gathering place since the Fort Wayne home had been sold at this time. So now they all like hung out at Alice's house in summers and on vacations and people just like come and hang. Uh, this home is where she wrote her book and did a lot of her most well-known work. In the fall of 1921, which was her second fall at Harvard, she got involved in the protests about Sacco and Vanzetti. Those names, are those names familiar to you? Less familiar than Hull House. Are they really? Because like I read Sacco and Vanzetti and I was like, oh, really? Like I I know all about the Sacco and Vanzetti because I really do. And maybe it's because I am into true crime person but Sacco and Benzetti were were definitely a big part of the American history that we we would have got that probably Mr. Gibson's class I know I did not learn about this in that class there's no way Sacco and Benzetti 
I feel like I don't that was in that class. It was the time period. I don't know. The point is, let me tell you who Sackle and Vanzetti are. They were executed in Massachusetts for a crime they possibly did not commit. They maybe did, but they maybe didn't. It's very famously known to be a, a major miscarriage of justice in that they clearly did not have a fair trial. Because they were immigrants? Oh, or... so many reasons. Let me let me oh. go through it for you. Oh, okay. 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 Like, well, okay. So Alice had this friend in Boston. Her name was Katie Codeman. Like she went and visited the men in jail and Alice was involved in efforts to get the men a fair trial and all this kind of thing. Sacco and Vanzetti were accused of doing something that they probably didn't do, but not just that they were immigrants, but because they had possibly trumped up maybe legitimate ties to some fascist groups. Mm. And this was between the world wars. So that mm. was a thing mm -hmm. because of their political leanings, mm. it, it looked bad. And so whatever they, they they absolutely did not get a fair trial. Okay. Like when you, when you go through and read the whole, whatever they did not, I don't know if they did what they were accused of, but I know the trial wasn't fair. So should they have gotten a new trial? Yes. Would they probably have still convicted? Possibly, but in a fair trial, I don't have a problem with it. Do you know what I mean? And I think mm -hmm. that's what Alice thought too. Cause she was trying like, cause they didn't get a fair, they, there was no new trial. They never got a new trial. Despite the fact that she, she had signed petitions, people were petitioning. It was this big deal. Hmm. And then they were trying to get them a sentence other than the death penalty. Like, okay, commute the sentence though, because this trial wasn't fair. If you're not going to give them a new trial, at least commute the sentence. Well, that effort wasn't successful either. But many of her colleagues knew that Alice was involved in doing what she could to, to help, to like be involved in this situation in a helpful way. One colleague wrote her and, and honestly asked her why she had signed the petition asking for clemency. And he genuinely wanted to know. He told her how much he admired her scientific training and, and said, why, why did you sign this petition? It really had shaken his confidence in her because it couldn't have been based on a thorough investigation. They obviously did it. And then he got like, I like, I like to say that he got Alice. So here's what that looks like. Okay. She sent back a calm and clear letter explaining exactly why she had signed the petition and just how much time she had spent researching it, which was seven years. She followed the, the trial from beginning to end. She read court transcripts, newspaper articles, interviews, every single piece of paper, public record that she could get. And she had a friend who was going to visit these dudes that she talked to. She was very well informed on the subject and had formed her opinion, having much information. And she told him all of this and what sources he had used. So this, and this is, this is what it means to get Alice. Hmm. He wrote her back and apologized to her. So Sorry for, sorry for saying that. You really did research this. I respect your opinion. Okay. And, I, and I just want to say that for all of you out there that think this is a thing that couldn't happen, maybe today it couldn't. I think it would be a lot better if we all did this now. But when someone has a difference of opinion with you, he made the assumption that she had just had no, had no information. She, she's not, she couldn't make that decision on her own. She obviously didn't research it, but you're a researcher. What, how could you? And she's like, no, dude, I did research it. And in the course of my research, here is what I found. 
She didn't get mad. She didn't call him names. She just laid out for him what she had simply seen. And he was like, okay, fair enough. I don't think he agreed with her, but he was, he respected her opinion. So I, I want to highlight that that is still a thing that might be good. Alice retired in 1935 at the age of 66. She did not stop exploring the dangerous trades. See what I did there? Uh-huh. See, I see that. Yeah. In 1940, at the age of 71, she published a paper on her investigation into rayon factories. Are you going to talk about that? Mm, very briefly. Okay. I think I'll mention it. Um, but she was also beginning to go on the honor circuit. Like, people want to just give her awards. She met Eleanor Roosevelt, in fact, on one of these, like, go to a place, get an award, make a speech, they'll give you lunch, you know, that Ooh. kind of thing. So and like a whole bunch of other big deal people. And every one of them was completely unsurprised that she had faced very little opposition in meeting her goals. Mm. Everyone who met her was like, oh, no wonder. She's so nice. She's just the stinking nicest person. She's like, she sounds like the Paul Rudd of industrial health and safety. <laughs> just like nice. You're just nice. Uh, you just want to be around them. Right? I don't yeah. know. That's how I feel. When she was awarded the Lasker Award in 1947, the statue that she got, like you get a little statuette and it came with a thousand dollar prize. And it was a prize for science or medicine or, you know, one of those kind of deals. She said, quote, most of the men recipients that year did not keep the thousand dollar bonus that went along with the trophy. They gave it to some noble cause. My sister Margaret and I took mine and went to Mexico. Nice. Which I was like, yes, I'm so, I hope she had a lovely time. I'm sure she did. She probably made friends. So Alice regarded the years of life past 80 as, quote, pure extravagance. And she had 20 of them. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Alice Hamilton lived to the fabulous old age of 101 years old, dying from a stroke in September of 1970. Wow. And can we just think for a minute of all the things that happened from 1869 to 1970s? just the things she saw yeah two world wars yeah and and the kind of actually honestly turn of a century turn of the century tail end of the civil war honestly because 1869 that that war had been over less than five years yeah i mean yeah it was a very interesting time period to be yeah there was still it it was and so and yeah and she had traveled the world she'd seen everything in 101 years and just, and they say she died of a stroke. It was more like complications from a stroke that she had had a few she's days. She's 101. So. She's 101. She died because she was old. She died because yeah. her body was like, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Because she had done literally everything. Yeah. So that is a brief overview. You guys don't even know how brief. We're going to talk about it when we get to her legacy section because, oh, the things that I had to cut out of this that just simply would not fit. Other, this, this could be its own season we could have done 12 episodes on alice hamilton i feel like oh man yeah i don't know if that much but yeah it's it's a lot it's just a lot it's a lot so again we'll talk about that in legacy so so yeah there you go that's alice cool all right let's take a break and then i need you to fill in that giant gap of her life the chunk that i cut out i'm gonna need you to fill that in for us with all the science okay Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT Ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's really great. 
The whole idea of Proton Guru is academic accessibility. So at protonguru.com, you can find a free full organic chemistry course, a free MCAT organic course, and diversity modules related to organic chemistry. The cool new thing that just got added might be the best part though. It's called MCAT Ladder, and it's an MCAT test prep course like no other. It's prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really wanted to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how thorough it is with exceptional concept explanations and visual learning, plus questions that are challenging like real MCAT questions. The MCAT ladder is only $500. And if that's not enough, they have a scholarship program, too. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT Ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. I think we have a really good picture of Tinkerbell, Dr. Alice Hamilton. So Brenna, let's hear more about industrial medicine. And you can fill in that ma massive gap that I left in her life because that's what she was doing during the time. All right. So I'm going to start with a quote, as has become my habit. It's what you do. It's what I do. This was really my introduction to the world of science. I shall never forget the revelation that came to me when I saw through the microscope the cells which make up the human body and realized that later on, I should be looking at these cells changed by disease that the actual process of disease could be viewed by the human eye. This is just a quote from Alice uh, in regards to when she finally got into the lab, as you mentioned, at U of M. And was like, oh, hey, like there's there's more to see here. So let's talk lead first. I Delicious want to but start, deadly. Yes, I want to start by giving a short-ish history about it and lead poisoning Ooh. because I found it fascinating. I'm very interested in this. This obviously won't be comprehensive. I'm not, you know, the end-all be-all expert in lead, but I think knowing some history and why lead is bad uh, kind of helps paint a complete picture see uh, what I did there I see what <laughs> you did there uh -huh. okay all right okay so here's the deal and honestly if you do want a more complete picture of lead poisoning this podcast will kill you has a full episode on lead poisoning um, which I actually listened to as part of my research just for a little bit I actually read most of what they covered in my research but I listened to it mostly because I just like it but anyway yes lead has been around for literally millennia as in the oldest artifact found made from lead is some necklace or something from Anatolia that's been dated roughly 6,000 years old. Whoa. So like, you know, old, old. And it was widely used in Greek and in Roman civilization, cooking utensils, wine, urns, pots, oh, etc. All had lead. Okay. Lead was, and I would assume still is a byproduct of refining silver and gold ore. Mm -hmm but lead mining would have also been going on as well. Well, it's a super soft metal. So I can see why lead would be desirable. Like, like before you really got good at. Yeah. And I'm actually metal. kind of surprised that they, they have a necklace that's made of lead because they really wouldn't have been using it for weaponry and for jewelry right. and stuff. Cause it's not shiny. It's not like it's no. so anyway. Um, a lot of times it was just added into things. But the most fun fact that I like about this history lesson in lead is that lead's chemical symbol is PB. Yes. I always thought it was like a weird thing. Why is it PB? 
right? I mean, I did learn this later on, but in high school, when I had to first learn, I was like, this is yeah, silly. This like, is how am I supposed silly. to remember lead is PB? What, what is this? But it's PB because that's um, shortened for plumbum, which is the Latin word for the metal. And our word plumbing comes from this. I knew that. Um, because the Romans used lead in their aqueducts. So lead apparently has a sweet taste. I have never tasted it because I, but that's why I people talked about, we don't eat the science, but yes, this is not science you should eat. And they, yeah. they go to great lengths to make sure like, cause apparently little kids used to eat lead paint chips cause they were sweet. I never understood that. I, I don't, I, I feel like, I don't know why kids ate. Well, we'll talk about it anyway. So it apparently has a sweet taste and was used in wine. Um, for example, like, um, like a sweetener slash maybe even like a preservative like if you had to ship your wine somewhere or send it somewhere and you put some what was it it was like called I didn't write just like sapa or something like that there was a name for what they used but anyway I read it is estimated that wealthy Romans because they had all their leaded stuff and their wine and everything probably took in 35 to 250 milligrams per day whoa compared to a 0.3 milligram per day intake in the U.S. in 1980. Yikes. Like that's a lot of lead, you guys. They would have set up metal detectors. That's so much lead. It's a lot of lead. And like I had read in one article, but it was an older article about um, how people uh, say, well, maybe the reason that the Caesars had so many mental issues is because of lead poisoning because it does mess with your brain. But, you know, honestly, incest will do that to you, too. So I don't know. I mean, the Caesars had a whole lot of things going on and the emperors and the, you know, whatever. But I think that's kind of been not disproved, but just kind of not really generally accepted as far as it was more it was more the incest than the lead poisoning that made them. I don't I mean, I don't know if that's the argument. I always used to think that that was the big problem, like stop marrying each other. I mean, but. Okay, cool. I mean, whatever. Anyway, as early as 250 BC, a dude named Nicander of Colophon wrote about acute effects from high exposure to lead. A Greek named Diocerides also wrote about lead and how it was not a super great thing. He wrote, quote, lead makes the mind give way. So we kind of have this sense that maybe a bunch of lead in our bodies, not great kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, sure. But we're talking about acute poisoning. Okay. And acute poisoning is going to be different from chronic lead poisoning. So put that in your satchel because we'll come back to that. But still we're talking BC times, right? Where physicians are like, Hey, this is probably not good. I just feel like that's a long time to know that lead is not a great thing, yet still continue to use it willy-nilly without any attempt to, you know, curb that. I don't know. So, but still we're talking about acute poisoning and acute, the difference between acute and chronic in anything, right? Acute would be like high amounts of it all at one time or like a short period of time versus really small amounts kind of stretched out over a long period of time. So if you die of acute arsenic poisoning, someone put it in your tea. If you right. die of chronic arsenic poisoning, they're putting someone a little put bit it in, in your tea, but they put a little bit over like years and they years. put it in the sugar bowl and waited for you to just add it to your tea over time. I mean, yeah, that's I how we'll think of it. Okay. All right. So now we got to fast forward zip 
to the late 17th century and some monks in Ulm, Germany were making a wine using a white lead oxide to sweeten their wine. So uh, everybody in Ulm getting tipsy. Oh, no. And when I say tipsy, I mean sick. And this Ooh. wine was also traded beyond Ulm. So I guess somehow they were smart enough to be like, hey, no more leaded wine because we need to keep up this trade economy with our wine. Oh. So they outlawed the use of this white lead oxide in their wine because it was going to be a problem in terms of like trading it outside of Ulm. Oh, it was okay. Look bad. It, like it could have possibly like disrupt the trade or whatever. Yeah. Also, <laughs> this is fun. Uh, in the 17th century, a German physician named Samuel Stockhausen spoke out, quote, openly against the Paracelsian medical model, advised the miners of the mining town of Goslar to avoid the aspiration of dust, attributing the etymology of miners' asthma to the noxious fumes of a lead compound. Okay, the Paracelsian model of being, of course, a throwback to our boy, Paracelsus, who was like, well, anything in the wrong dose is poison, but like little amounts are fine. Yeah. Yeah. But it has like, it's like the Paracelsian- I'm, that's so exciting. I know. I'm like, I read that and I was like, I know what this word means. So again, there was recognition in the 17th century um, that miners breathing in lead particles in the dust were probably not doing something healthy for themselves. Yeah. But I just, I just love that Paracelsus just serendipitously showed up in one of, one of our episodes beyond him. Anyway, I love it. I love it. Uh, fun fact, and we, you, most people are more familiar with this lead being in paint because it was another big thing that would have had lead carbonate, but I read in one article that Rembrandt may have had chronic lead poisoning. Oh, like Rembrandt, like Rembrandt. Oh, that would make sense based on what yeah. I know about Rembrandt. That Isn't would that make cool? Sense. I mean, not cool for him, no. but cool from like a, Hey, wow. This person might've had, lead yeah. paint, you know? Um, so, you know, once people stopped using it and, you know, makeup to powder their wigs and so forth, there were some weird ways that people ended up with lead in their system back in the day because of how they used it, whatever, but it was still being used. Okay. They stopped doing it in certain areas, but it was still being used. And mm-hmm. from the 18th to the 20th century, we're almost to Alice's time here. Mm-hmm. The big problem with lead is occupational outbreaks. And people knew this was a problem. For example, Charles Dickens wrote an essay called Star of the East, and he described a woman working in a white lead, which is lead carbonate, but uh, a white lead mill. And I quote her brain. This is in his essay. Her brain is coming out her ear and it hurts her dreadful. What? I feel like that sounds probably, I mean, I'm sure that was exaggeration, but like, so um, during this period, there are several people who made breakthroughs in understanding and evaluating chronic lead exposure, how that affected people. And again, chronic lead poisoning is going to present differently in a patient compared to someone who has acute poisoning. And I will get to that in just a few minutes, but that has to be evaluated. And I actually read, I read a very nice article about all that. And it's, it's not super important for getting to Alice, but there were a lot of important contributions from other scientists along the way that were like, hey, Chronic lead poisoning is a thing too. Uh, it's just not good in general to have it in your body. We'll talk about why, but you just shouldn't probably have it in your body. Okay, fair. And so 
suffice to say that by the 19th century, some countries started to think a little bit more carefully about workers and their exposure and minors and some of this stuff. Okay. Getting new, getting new workers is expensive. I mean, while not in America, it wasn't, which was the problem, which is the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I've said it a lot, but lead is bad. You know, lead poisoning, not good. The, okay. the official position of BA in science is that you should Lead is bad lead. for you. Yes. yes. Okay. Correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. I can get behind. But let's talk about what happens with it. So a lot of you listening may be old enough where leaded gas was still a thing at some point in your lifetime. I think it was even in mine. I just was very little. I don't think it was outlawed until nine, 1990. Or it, maybe it was, it was, maybe it was, it might've been 88. It might've been. Okay. Like, it might've been. Yeah. So right around when I was born, but you know, if you are my age or older, like leaded gasoline was a thing at some point in your lifetime. And, you know, now you go to the gas station, it always says unleaded, which is kind of like it, Doy. it, like, it should be good. We hope it is because if you go to a gas station and it says leaded, just leave, just don't immediately know. Okay. Get out of here. Okay. So I, I think it's a kind of funny that it still says unleaded because of course it's not leaded because for the most part, I grew up with unleaded gas. So like, right. Why do we, why do we need to say that? But lead paint has been a thing up until more recently. You know, if you've done a house inspection or bought a house, right, there's always some kind of disclosure about like, how old is the house? And if it was built before a certain time, um, does any of this paint contain lead, blah, blah, blah. So if your kid decides to lick the walls, you know that it's a problem, which I I still, I still don't understand it. But um, so it's, you know, it's not like lead has completely gone away, but we just, um, you know, have learned to manage it for the most part. From what I understand today, lead poisoning tends to be a bigger problem for underdeveloped countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I really won't get into it because it isn't rele- uh, relevant in terms of Alice's work because we're really focusing on industrial uh, incidents or mm-hmm. the, the problem in, in, dust, in, in industrial places or industrial health. Um, the population most affected by lead poisoning is children. And it's awful. And this podcast will kill you talks all about why it messes kids up even more and everything like that. I mean, it's still not good for adults, but it's really bad for kids. Um, But I'm really going to avoid a lot of that because industry. Okay. Okay. Um, All right. So I don't know that we've talked too much about metals or metal poisoning on the show. Like we mentioned mercury and arsenic and stuff like that, but um, probably we've never talked about like why or what they actually do when they get in there, but no, here's the have. problem with lead. And you know, this can be some other of uh, these other metals too. Honestly, I mean, you can, if you get too much iron in your system and you can't bind it and get it out, that's a problem. I mean, your body is supposed to have a certain amount of all the stuff and we don't have this right amount of stuff. It's not good. Yeah. So lead, if it gets in your body, it breaks down into its ionic form. This is true of like all the metals in your body. Like you have iron you have iron with a charge it's an ionic it's a cation that binds to your uh heme units and your hemoglobin that kind of stuff right so it's slightly so, positive cations are yeah cations positive, positive. yeah okay. mm-hmm. yeah so, so lead has an electron a, yes okay or or more so lead has or a two more. plus charge okay or oh plus. yeah okay yes yes because of where okay. yes i'm with you now all right so lead has a two plus charge You have other important metal ions that your body uses to do a lot of important biochemical stuff. So for example, calcium also has a two plus charge. 
Oh, oh no. And we all know that milk does a body good because you need calcium for your bones. Okay. Yeah. Well, when lead gets in and has the same charge, it basically can compete and we can't get into it, but depending on what, how the binding mechanism is in terms of how things bind, um, whatever, it basically competes to go anywhere that calcium can go like your bones. So, um, you know, so then your bones are storing the lead and leaded bones are not recommended. Official position of VA and science is that you do not want leaded bones. In addition okay. to unleaded gas, you want unleaded bones. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And honestly, what it was funny, it's not funny, but when I was reading Alice's book, she would talk about the leaded men and it just sounded funny, but like they were leaded, like they were, it was like gasoline that was leaded, but you know, Jeez. Um, okay. You know, you know what else is affected by lead? Uh, what's yeah. our favorite thing to talk about? Oh my gosh. Your kidneys. Yeah. Kidneys. Yay. Oh my gosh. And I actually found an article called the kidney and lead poisoning and was probably unusually excited about it. I'll talk a little bit more. I'm going to get to like symptoms of lead poisoning, all that okay. here in a minute, but okay. one more fun fact about history of lead poisoning before we talk about the disease itself. Have you seen that lead poisoning Maggie is also called Saturnism? Yes. I okay. Have seen that. Do you know why? I mean, I know okay. mythologically why. Yeah. So back in the day when they thought there were only eight elements, they mm -hmm. thought like the eight great heavenly bodies were composed out of those eight elements. Mm -hmm. So the sun was gold. The moon was silver. Jupiter was copper, Mars, iron, Venus, 10, Mercury. Well, Mercury, they called it quicksilver, but Mercury yeah. and Saturn was lead. Wow. So that's why it's called Saturnism, Very which cool. maybe Edith Hamilton would know. I'm a hundred percent sure that Edith and Alice talked about that. Maybe uh, they had yeah. to have. But anyway, if you see the term Saturnism used, it, it's lead poisoning, and that's why. Okay, which cool. is so cool. Okay, so what are actually the symptoms of acute and chronic lead poisoning? So I'll start with acute. And I literally am just going to read out symptoms I saw listed from the Mayo Clinic. Pain, muscle weakness, numbness and tingling, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation. Um, also, if you absorb too much in a short time, it can send your body into shock, anemia, you get hemoglobin in your urine, damage to the kidneys, which can lead to things like low urine output and then long run kidney disease, gout, blood pressure issues, all that stuff. Okay. Wow. Okay. So why does it damage the kidneys and cause nephrotoxicity, which is also a fun word to say, but yes. basically your kidneys are how your body gets rid of all your stuff, right? Yeah. Like your kidneys have to filter everything out and get it, get it out. Well, that includes lead. Okay. Okay. So the lead goes into your kidneys as your body is like, get this stuff out. Well, you have renal tubules that absorb it. <gasps> then it goes in and it screws with the proteins and it, I mean, it's complicated, but bad things happen. So basically your, your kidneys are trying to excrete it by pushing it out. But because of the nature of lead, there's a way for it to get through those renal, renal tubules. It gets absorbed and it goes and screws with the proteins. No way. Toxicity and all kinds of kidney issues and gout because gout's related to kidney issues and uh, yeah. blood pressure is oddly, I didn't realize this related to uh, blood, blood pressure and kidney are linked as well. I really feel like that's why people have two kidneys because they're maybe super important. Yeah. I mean, good that we, I like that we can live with just one if we needed to. 
and that we can give one to someone else. Like kidney transplants are actually yeah. fairly common in terms yeah. of transplants and, and very successful. Yeah. Although they're also doing, I think we mentioned pig heart transplants last episode. We did. They're doing kidney pig, Kidneys. pig kidney trains and whatever. Anyway, neat. using pig kidneys, but that's acute. So chronic symptoms have some overlap with acute, but we do have different ones as well. High blood pressure, joint pain, fatigue, but then problems with sleep, headaches, stupor, slurred speech, anemia, mood disorders, something called lead hue of your skin. Uh, there's something called the Burton line. It's also called a lead line, which is like a blue line along the gum. Yeah, oh. like the gum of your mouth with um, I've heard of that yeah edging to teeth yeah mm-hmm. um which I think think pretty much you don't really see that anymore because they catch things well I guess maybe in like um underdeveloped countries maybe it'd be more common but um it um, was also common back in like the olden days in uh when women were poisoning their husbands or oh. men were poisoning their business partners. Like oh, cool. you might have a medical examiner who would like, they'd pull up the upper lip to be like, let's check those gums. Mm-hmm. And if they, cause, cause like there are lots, obviously there are lots of metals that you can give to someone that will kill them. Yeah. And lead was one of them. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can also have visual disturbances. That's pretty common. And this is actually how an eye doctor in Australia around the turn of the 20th century started putting two and two together about lead poisoning and, and lead paint with kids. And Australia actually banned lead paint in 1914. And then in, in, yeah, 1914, which at first people were like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? This is crazy. But eventually it kind of like came to light, like, no, you know, like the the kids that are like, you know, eating lead chips, lead paint chips, something's messed up with their eyes and then they're acting weird. And, you know, anyway, so an international convention banned lead in paint in 1925. The U.S. did not sign that international treaty. It was like 1970 when we finally officially like fully banned. I think I read that states might have, some states might have banned it sooner, but like the U.S. overall. So that is why if you have bought a house in your lifetime, you 100% would have had questions or had something on there about lead paint disclosures or when the house was built or what paint was used or whatever, because up until 1970, you could have freaking lead in your paint. That's not great. I mean, and then there's the whole leaded gasoline, but yeah. Anyway, so finally we get to Alice and her contributions to this story and why, you know, these workers that she is dealing with are getting this chronic lead poisoning. Okay. So in 1910, Alice was selected to serve on an occupational disease commission in Illinois. And keep in mind at this time, industrial hygiene or industrial health, it was not a thing people worried about. It wasn't a thing in the United States, really. Like you mentioned, industrial revolution was super cool, but not great if you had to work in a factory. Great if you could buy all the stuff you could get from a factory. Yes. But not if you had to work there because there weren't worker protections. They didn't have an OSHA. Right. There's no recourse for employees who were exposed to poisonous chemicals. No workers comp. Yeah, none of that. Right. So this commission was a big deal and Alice was the managing director of the survey. And they decided to study kind of a a list of things like lead, arsenic, brass, carbon monoxide, cyanide, turpentine, you know, whatever. But they divvied it up. So it fell to Alice to look into lead. Okay. So she had a team of medical students, other assistants, social workers, and so forth. And she had her assistants spend a lot of time looking into like medical and hospital records, talking to labor leaders, doctors, druggists or pharmacists in areas heavily populated by the working classes. A lot of these immigrant 
area, you know, areas that were heavily populated by immigrants and so forth. And a major purpose of the investigation was to find out what trades were even affected by lead as a workplace hazard. Because, okay. you know, maybe, maybe we're for sure, like, you know what, I bet these factories, they've probably got, you know, an issue with lead, but they didn't necessarily even know where all they were going to find it. Okay. So Alice found that trades like enameling and painting, which we kind of knew about, but all the way, all the way down to things like making freight car seals, coffin trim, Ooh. cut glass polishing, wrapping cigars in tin foil, because it was actually lead, not tin pose all, all these all these trades pose a lead hazard to the workers but it took a lot of um, effort to really hunt down and track down like what trades do we need to be worried about in terms of you know lead exposure okay so what they came to recognize was as alice wrote lead poisoning is brought about far more rapidly and intensely by the breathing of lead-laden air than by the swallowing of lead there can be no intelligent control of the lead danger in industry unless it is based on the principle of keeping the air clear from dust and fumes. Oh. So the idea of it, if you just had a chunk of lead sitting on your desk, you're not going to like die from it. Like nothing's no. happening because it's not just going to like a huge chunk of metal, not just going to like aerosolize and get in your, your lungs. Right. <laughs> right. Yes, I mean, unless you're eating it, it's, it's not doing anything, but, well, but if you're eating it, you're going to get acute lead poisoning. Right. Yeah. But if you're working in a factory where part of the chemical that is getting kicked up into the air and into the dust is this really, really fine particle of lead, right? That's the problem. Okay. So yeah. they really kind of, it's not like we didn't know chronic lead poisoning was a thing. It's not that we weren't even aware that in these mines and stuff, it was an issue, but I don't know that it had really been studied and thought about like, okay, but like, where else are we using lead and where else are people breathing in dust and fumes that have all this lead in it? Okay. So the fact that they kind of were like, these workers are being exposed over time to dust containing lead, that's going to lead to the chronic lead poisoning and so forth. Okay. In pretty much all these traits, whatever materials being used that contain lead was in some way and at some point in the process, a dust. Okay. So just as an example, a painter using leaded paint might then sand down afterwards, right? Yes. If you sand down leaded paint, it's just going to put a bunch of really fine particles up like as dust, right? It's why painters wear, I mean, for various reasons, but even back then wearing a mask would have been a great thing for a painter to do because you wouldn't be breathing in all that dust. Well, in the first house that we bought when we lived in Cleveland, it was a house that was built in like the 1920s or 30s. Mm -hmm. And so they, there was a lead paint disclosure and we're like, cool, cool, cool. And then we had to get one of our doors replaced. And so mm -hmm. when Home Depot came out, they did the lead test where they put this thing on your door and it turns a color and they're like, Ooh. Hey, there's lead paint in this. So it's going to cost you an extra 50 bucks for us to deal with it because it's hazardous, which yeah. comes down. But I like, I understand. I yeah. wasn't thrilled about the fee, but like, but they also have to dispose of it properly because yeah, he's going to come in there and start sanding. And so he's got to wear special protective gear because mm -hmm. all of that led us like, and we had to leave while he was doing right. Yeah. That. Yeah. You couldn't like we couldn't be in the house. Cause like we had had, like I had had my son and he was a baby and he could not right. be around the lead dust. Right. So like when we had that door replaced, we had this whole mm -hmm. big thing about like, yeah. nope, you can't do it. It was this really cool. Yeah. He, he showed me the dot. He's like, see this blue mm -hmm. dot. This is bad. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So yeah, I mean that, and that is why you need to know when you buy a house, because if you went to go try to do some kind of work and didn't know, mm -hmm. like it, it would just be bad. Right. Yeah. It'd just be bad. Yep. 
Um, so, you know, Alice wrote a lot trying to convince everyone that lead poisoning in the trades was a thing. Like that is a, that is a, an issue to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Measures should be taken against it. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned this, but you know, Europe was a bit ahead of the game, um, in terms of industrial health and Mm -hmm. especially like lead poisoning and some of these other ones. So she found information regarding England and Germany, and they'd been taken better care of how their workers, uh, were treated and they were better protected against leaded materials that they were working with. So in England in 1910, because this would have been during her survey year, she visited a factory that made white and red lead. And none of the 90 men had had any kind of issue with lead poisoning. Really? Like no, no symptoms, no, you know, whatever. And I didn't read like what exactly they were doing to to prevent this, like how the plant what, was what mitigation. Yeah, I don't know the yeah. engineer controls or whatever, but whatever they were doing, their men were not being, you know, they're, they're producing these, you know, these lead uh, compounds, right. And they're not, they don't have it. Conversely, a plant doing the same exact thing in the U S with 85 men had doctor's records indicating that 35 of those 85 men were leaded in six months. Ooh, that's not good. Yeah. That's a high percentage. It's almost, that's a third. Yeah. And so in in addition to visiting plants and looking into things, I will talk a little bit more about that too, but she would go talk to employees. She would go talk to employees, families. Like you said, she'd be like, Hey, what do you do? What's your job? What are you working with? And whatever. And that is part of how she kind of hunted down different trades that might be potentially causing these problems. Cause she's seeing these symptoms or, Oh, this, this is happening to you too. Why, why is the bathtub enameler also leaded or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the families seem to recognize that, um, you know, their work was making them sick. Like I go to work and then I'm, I'm sick, mm-hmm. but I don't know that they necessarily knew it was lead. You know, they right. just they knew that, okay, this job makes me sick, but I need money. Um, because they were probably immigrants and they mm-hmm. took the factory work. And that's like we mentioned earlier, probably in, in Europe, labor wasn't cheap. You did have to find people right. to come and work. You have so many people coming to America mm-hmm. and immigrating and you have right huge communities of Italians and all sorts, right? You have these huge populations of immigrants who don't speak a lot of English, mm-hmm. super badly need money, mm-hmm. will take whatever work they get and um, you know, a lot of the Americans or, or you were a certain point along the way in wealth with, you know, being in America, you don't want to work a factory job, you know, like right. that people knew that that was not a great place to work. Um, right. that because they watched, they watched people get sick yeah, from it. They factory knew. work was hard. The hours were terrible. I mean, there was, there was so much stuff in, um, the dangerous trades book about, these unions and walkouts and, you know, steel protests because the work hours were too long. I mean, there was so, it is just so much going on in terms of employee. employee. Well, the steel, the steel protests made Alice's job way harder too, because yeah, there she was some, after the clap back because of that, they wouldn't talk to her. They're like, no, I'm going to lose my job. And she's like, no, 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 no. It's cool. I'm going to help you guys. And yeah, like, yeah, it's just, you know, so they would just keep going. I mean, yeah. they're like, well, okay. Um, so I just want to read one of the cases Alice wrote about in her work um, that she'd found in Chicago. So this is about um, an enameler. A bohemian, an enameler of bathtubs, had worked 18 months at his trade without apparently becoming poisoned, though his health had suffered. One day while at the furnace, he fainted away, and for four days he lay in a coma. 
then passed into delirium during which it was found that both forearms and both ankles were palsied. He made a partial recovery during the following six months, but when he left for his home in Bohemia, he was still partly paralyzed. After the state survey, that's when she got appointed to the federal government survey of the lead trades, Mm -hmm. which would be essentially what she did in Illinois, but just across the whole country. Oh, wow. Okay. But again, keep in mind, especially as she expands the scope of this um, survey, she didn't have a right to enter any factory or plant. She had to get the employer's permission to enter. And that was after she even discovered where to go to investigate. So it's, it was such a process because, you know, she, she had kind of carte blanche from the government to be like, just do what you need to do. Um, But again, because there were no regulations in terms of all this stuff, which look, I'm not like all for like tons of government regulation, but a little bit's not a bad thing. She had to not only find out what trade she, at least from the survey in Illinois, she kind of knew what trade she was looking for, Mm -hmm. but it probably required her to go places, talk to the people that were there. Like, oh, where do you work? Oh, there's an enameling plant down the road. Oh, let me go check that out. But like, it's not like she could just go to a phone book and like Google or, you know, or search on Google, like list of enamelers in the Chicago area. Right. 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 All this stuff. Like, it's just crazy to me. Like that she, this, the anyway. scope of this job overwhelms me. And the patience, because I would be like, this is no, this is too much. I don't want to do this. No, well, well, the good, the good news is that like Montana wasn't super industrialized. So probably once you got past about Iowa, things got a little okay, bit. Okay. But was there mining out there? Oh yeah. Well, maybe in my, mm, Colorado for sure. Colorado, Colorado Nevada yeah. for sure. So, you know, Ugh. okay. But here's, oh, oh, here's what also would, I would just quit. She only got paid for her work in this federal survey after she finished the work and they gave them the report. And then they would decide like how much that report was worth immediately. No, absolutely not. If you want to know what our faces look right, look, look like, right now we both look perplexed and disgusted like, and also like we both have those two lines between yeah. our eyes that, that yeah. indicate wtf that's yeah. the face that we're making right now so i read through a lot of her writings and she talked a lot about her travels across the u.s looking mm-hmm. into these problems um i don't have time to go into all the details but basically she found the same thing across the states in terms of workers with severe chronic lead poisoning lead fits insanities and stuff like that not uncommon and again, she's found, you know, workers knew there was an issue, like work is making me sick. Some even recognized or would say like, I have, you know, it's lead colic or I have these other symptoms because of the lead. But again, it was probably they needed the job. This was the industry they could do. They needed the money, whatever. And so they would just keep going, which is terrible. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering about all this, which kind of brought up, is it because the employers are evil and greedy and don't care about the people? Don't get me started on the radium girls because I have so much to say about the radium girls, but oh man, oh man. Okay. Did they not know they should be doing things to improve conditions, right? Like, is this kind of just the the employers were kind of ignorant about how to deal with it? They didn't realize that all the dust was about whatever. Did so industry was, grow up so fast? Did it grow past the scope of what we had occurred to people? Like, well, the people oh. that are in charge of these plants are they are they scientists? Are they do they have engineers who come? No, I mean that stuff didn't exist. They just here's a big old you know box of a warehouse. Let's put our stuff in here and make things. You know, I mean, yeah, exactly, you know. yeah. But I thought it was interesting because Alice found more often than not, not in every case, 
the employers were kind of as ignorant as the workers, didn't realize that breathing in, you know, blood dust day in, day out was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And so she did find many places, the businesses, the employers were somewhat receptive to making some changes mm-hmm. or figuring out how to minimize the amount of dust and fumes in the facility to help the workers. Because while they probably did have access to more employees because of immigration and those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. it sounded like a lot of employers were kind of like, well, I mean, I don't, I don't really want to kill my, these people because they got families and stuff. I don't know. It was just kind of reassured. I guess I felt like reassured um, because I'm sure this is not, this is not the case in every, in every instance, but there were a lot of employers that were like, oh, uh, oh, okay. Well, how do we fix this? You know, what, what do we do? And she well, did see a lot of improvements, I think, um, from a lot of her recommendations and just starting to say like, Hey, if you're working in an XYZ plant, you should be doing this and this to kind of, you know, cut down on it or whatever. And I don't know, but I feel like this, like in, you know, engineers who do this kind of plant designing and all this stuff, I feel like this would be like, you know, their time to shine. Like, here you go. Solve these problems kind of thing. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And I read, although I read somewhere too, that, and that it usually wasn't super expensive changes. Mm-hmm. It was, it was like maybe swap out workers a little bit. Like it was, it was yeah. simple changes. And also get your workers educated in terms of like, Hey, when you do this work, you should not do it in an enclosed space. You should be doing this outside so you can still breathe fresh air kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And so that, that made it more, that made it more palatable and her personality, man. Well, yeah. Yeah. But it, it, well, okay. It also helped because insurance companies did come under um, compensation laws eventually. And that kind Mm. of forced plants into having um, preventative measures because they would be like, the insurance companies could say, well, if you don't have these measures in place, we're not going to do the insurance. Right. So that also, man, it is such a heavy topic to get into labor laws, compensation, how, how all of, I, wow, it was yeah. overwhelming. It was overwhelming. And it, it does intercept with Alice's work because of what she was doing. But yep. Yep. anyway, because of all the ways in which Alice attacked this problem, she always gets associated with the term shoe leather epidemiology, mm. which basically it's called shoe leather because you personally are investigating the disease. You're looking at outbreaks at the local population level. You're not relying on some doctor's reports or whatever. You're walking to these places, hence shoe leather, right? To mm-hmm. fully investigate. So that's like, oh my gosh, not even half of everything when it comes to lead. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't want to talk about lead anymore. So let's okay. talk about some of the other poisons and problems that Alice dealt with. Okay. Okay. Interestingly, earlier on in her career, when she was still researching in bacteriology for infectious diseases, she did some work investigating tuberculosis, um, which she kind of encountered off and on throughout her work. But in 1902, Chicago was having a typhoid fever epidemic. I, I remember that from some research. Yes. Oh, okay. So typhoid fever, which I don't, it's not to be confused with typhus, which I feel totally like different. I, I feel like I've used those interchangeably in my life. And I, I have to like ever since TPWKY just did a typhoid episode, they have oh, okay. done a typhus episode. Okay. Okay. Listen to them. They did yeah. it. Um, yeah. They're, they're transmitted. It's the, the whole thing. Yes. Totally yeah. different things. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, it's a poop disease. Okay. It is. Um, it's just, it's, I don't know. it's flea, it's lice, body louse poop it's yeah it's yeah um so it it was still a problem even in the 20th century Huge problem. Uh, yeah was. yeah 
mostly because of sanitation issues. Okay. Because yeah. by this time it was known that it was a problem um, starting with fecal matter and then whatever else happens after that. And we know it's growing there, but anyway, so Alice wanted to investigate this. And so she wrote, as I prowled around, this is something that makes her BA. As I prowled around about the streets and the ramshackle wooden tenement houses, I saw the outdoor privies forbidden by law, but flourishing nevertheless, filthy and with the plumbing out of order and flies everywhere. Here, I thought was the solution of the problem. The flies were feeding on typhoid infected excreta and then lighting on food and milk. I went forth to collect flies from privies and kitchens and filthy water closets. We would drop the flies into tubes of broth and I would take them to the laboratory, incubate the tubes and plate them out at varying intervals. It was a triumph to find the typhoid bacillus. It explained why the slums had so much more typhoid than the well-screened and decently drained homes of the well-to-do. I'm sure I gained more kudos from my paper on flies and typhoid than any, uh, than from any other piece of work I ever did. Okay. That's what she did. Okay. So here's this lady going around in nasty places to get flies. Um, and she got some recognition for it, but turns out she later discovered it wasn't her flies making typhoid such an issue. No, it wasn't. But actually there was a break in the line for a pumping station and sewage got into the water pipes for three days before they were like, Ooh, whoopsies, my bad. But Alice had written about the flies and the board of health was probably like, um, yeah, it was the flies. It was totally the flies that caused this epidemic, yes, you know, it, yes, not this were. embarrassing line break. Like, don't know. That's not a thing. Well, cause you were telling me about that. And I was like, that's not what TPWKY said. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. she investigated and got recognition in terms of like, oh, look, she discovered whatever. And it was basically a cover up. Like the board of health was just wow. like, yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds yeah. good. We'll just, we'll just go with that. Wow. So ridiculous. But I just envisioned her just like creeping around like this slummy area and going into, you know, like porta potties and taking fly. Like it's crazy to me. I know. This woman, this woman. I know. Um, and this, this was also really exciting to me while I was learning about Alice and I shouldn't say excited, but because it's sad, but she did get involved with our radium girls that we talked about in the Curie episodes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So really briefly, if you recall, radium is also, um, a thing that's not good for you. Yeah. And for quite some time, the U.S. companies that use paint containing radium to make watches and so forth, glow in the dark, hired younger girls to work in their studios. And, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, radium poisoning, it's a big deal. It's a problem. Um, and I don't have time to get into the radium girls, but, um, you know, it might be something I would like to talk about in more depth in, you know, a little bit of a bonus episode, I'm just episode, saying. you know, I'm just, I'm just saying, saying. So I'm not going to go into a bunch of the details, but Alice was on the committee appointed by the Surgeon General when there was a demand for the government to get involved in the whole thing. It became a whole thing and she, whatever. So she got um, put on the committee and she was aware of some of the legal cases that came forward from the workers at these studios, Mm -hmm. which again, I can't get into, but it's really fascinating. I want to talk so much more about it, but there was a report done by a guy named Cecil Drinker who was um, in charge of investigating the health of some of the radium girls. Mm-hmm. It essentially was covered up by the USRC, which is the US radium company. They're one of the two big ones that screwed these girls up. Mm-hmm. So it was basically covered up by the USRC, but Alice was friends with the drinkers, especially Cecil, Cecil's wife, Catherine. Yes. 
them and was like, hey, I think writing's a problem. And I think USRC is like kind of lying about your report and kind of like ignoring what you wrote. So you might want to take a look into that, okay? So it did kind of lead to some progress in legal proceedings, but she kind of helped alert the drinkers to the fact that like, uh, USRC is not on the up and up. And again, she hung out with the drinkers all the time. Like yeah. she was like, they, yeah. they came Different. up frequently yeah. in my research. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know that, um, that was, I didn't, I didn't, yeah. I so couldn't read that part. I didn't know. Yeah. Involved in the rating girl stuff. Yeah. Uh, so we're switching gears a little bit. Uh, let's talk about cocaine. Let's. <laughs> she, don't lie, she don't lie. She don't lie. Cocaine. Okay. You know, that Eric song. Yeah. Dad, why did dad, I don't know. I guess he knew that I wasn't doing cocaine, but I was allowed to listen to that in high school. I like drove around in the minivan listening to cocaine by Eric Clapton. Is that weird? Probably. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel I like I did it's it better too. to listen to it than like do it. So for sure. It's for sure. It's, for sure it's, it's yeah. We made the right yeah. choice. But Alice got involved in the cocaine problem in Chicago while living at Hull House. Oh, yeah, this one is a fun little story. So happy dust. Mm-mm. No, it certainly yeah. is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. was being sold to younger boys. I'm guessing teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't. I don't think I read in the one source I, or in her book like what age, but I'm guessing probably, you know, up to no good teenagers. But mm-hmm. so happy guess was being sold to younger boys by agents of drugstores. Okay, mm-hmm. who would like give them a pinch of the powder to try, and they're like, well, yeah, this is great stuff. So then they would get desperate for more and that we all know it leads to crime. It's bad. Like drugs are still a bad situation over the country. Like when people want drugs, bad thing, like it's bad. Yes. So she would get the cocaine that the police would confiscate in like these issues with all this, you know, drug crime or whatever. And she Mm -hmm. would go to the trials of druggists who sold the stuff. And I don't want to get into the political side of things, but there were laws against cocaine but not a synthetic chemical called eucane, which effectively does the same thing as cocaine. So then the druggist would be like, oh, what's well, eucane, not cocaine. So it's like, it's not under the law. But an easy test, so this is the fun part, an easy yeah. test at that time, because, you know, we don't have all the instrumentation back then right. that we have today. But an easy test at the time was to put some of this in your eye because your pupil will dilate if it's cocaine but not eucane. So it's, it's, there's slight differences. So your, your pupils will not dilate. Apparently. I don't know. I didn't try this. Your pupils won't dilate if it's eucane. So if like someone's trying to say, oh, well, it was just eucane, you could test it. Right. So Alice used to, used to test this on lab rabbits, but then the defense lawyers for these druggists would be like, um, she's mean to animals. So we can't accept this evidence. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just test it on you. Oh no. She's like, so then she's all like, fine i'll use my own eyes so she did yeah and she wrote i used to go around the laboratory with one wide and one narrow pupil till everyone was so used to it they took no notice oh my gosh of course she did of course she did oh my gosh well because because like i was expecting you to tell me that she would rock up to the defendant and be like no. Come here if you're so sure this is you cane give me those eyeballs and they'd be like no i'm just kidding it's cocaine i don't want this no, she would just wow. take it and she'd get in the lab. And once, you know, the people were like, don't be mean to rabbits. She's like, fine. Cause she knew that it wasn't going to like, right. it didn't hurt anything. Right. Like it, it's, it's a stimulant. So it's going to, it's, you know, you got to do what a stimulant does. It opens up so blood it's fine and it'll go back to normal, whatever. Um, but anyway, I 
there's a lot more to that story in the courts because eventually Yves King was covered under the law and whatever, but didn't know some of that about it and just wow. thought I would. I mean, I feel like that's pretty good science. Final disease, my own eyeballs. How many times throughout history were people like, fine, I will use my own body. There was the guy that gave himself cholera. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's I mean, some that I don't advise. Like she was smart about it. I'm going to do this thing that's going to cause no permanent damage to me. By right, the, the thing where the guy gave himself cholera by drink. I, we're not even going to get into that. Yeah, that might end up in a BS episode because there was a lot of S there. It's gross. It's gross. Yeah, uh, so, gross. But yeah, so- a common theme. I mean, you have to give scientists credit for being dedicated to their art, but gross. Okay, so as we all know, World War I was going on in the 1910s. And while America was late to that unparty, like kind of like an unbirthday in Alice in Wonderland. It was definitely an unparty. Mm-hmm. Unparty, like a really unparty. Um, the war obviously is going to usher in changes to the types of materials being produced in the U.S. Okay. Okay. And I did actually learn stuff about um, some of the manufacturing of some of these things. So one area that expanded rapidly was the production and manufacturing of things like picric acid, dinitrobenzene, trinitrotoluene. Um, those are all like explosives, right? Mm-hmm. Fulminate of mercury and other things. Mm-hmm. So a lot of production was because the allied forces needed them and we had the capabilities to produce it. So let's get into some of these chemicals. All of the chemicals I just mentioned are nitrated compounds, like NO2 groups, nitro groups. I've heard of it. And they are all made by using nitric acid on a variety of things um, to make different compounds. So lots of nitric acid was needed to do this in addition to the rest of the chemicals. So nitric acid was not really something the U.S. had been involved in in terms of production up to this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is kind of going to be problematic because we're going to start doing a bunch of production of things that we don't really have experience with yes um some of these compounds are problematic because the fumes um some make their way in through the skin and so forth but this is definitely an area that needed investigation as far as industrial health went mm-hmm. uh, but during wartime you know people aren't going to be like oh hey uh can you come check out what we're doing as we're making explosives no they're just gonna be like we got to produce all this stuff and we got to get it out because it's a war um also we don't want to be like hey here's where we're making all the explosives because right because you know you know you don't want it to get bombed so alice once again had to go hunt down this stuff and she did mention though it was a little bit easier because she would just follow the yellow and orange fume clouds because nitrous gases is produced from like picric acid and whatever nitrocellulose plants or whatever uh put out yellow and orange fumes sometimes she would encounter canaries uh, and these were men who were actually stained yellow from picric acid. Wow. And picric acid can be used as a yellow dye. It's yeah, a yellow dye and an explosive. Now, how much would you pay? I don't want it. I don't <laughs> want to buy it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I don't feel like turning yellow, uh, your, t- turning yourself yellow is like an ideal thing. No. But she would encounter these men who were like, you know, yellow and orange. And like, be like, did she, did hey, she where do you show work? up at the plant and be like, I think this, I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. No, I read guys? like she encounter- she like saw this guy like at a train station. Like okay. she would see him at like train stations because she'd see workers like going home or whatever, and she'd be like, "That and can't be like, good. Where does he work?" Yeah, can can you tell me the address of your employer? You know. So, why is nitric acid such a problem? Why is this all so bad? Okay, so nitric acid is a really strong acid. 
And like I said, we've talked about it um, in aqua regia. We talked about aqua regia before. Yeah. Um, it can eat through a lot of stuff. And yeah. when it's organic material that it re, um, reacts with, you get a lot of nitrogen dioxide, which is like a reddish brown gas. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a big environmental concern pollutant. Um, I used to work with it and it's, it, smell, it does smell bad. It looks gross. Like it's not pleasant. Um, it's like the smog and stuff like that's one of the things mm. that kind of makes it whatever. Okay. So if you form gas in a reaction, that creates pressure. So explosions from that's pretty standard in yeah. these plants. Okay. Nitrogen dioxide is not good. Um, it irritates your throat and your lungs and whatever. Um, the problem with nitrogen dioxide though, is that even though it's super bad for you, its effects aren't quite as strong as something like chlorine gas, right? Like if you, like men on the battlefield, if you got chlorine gas, you knew like you ran because your eyes were burning out, right? Mm -hmm. Like you yeah. just got out. Well, nitrogen dioxide and I would notice it because I'd work in the lab with it for a while. And I wouldn't really, like, we were mostly enclosed, but every now and again, you'd have a little bit of a leakage or a little bit would sure. get out. And I would notice later on, like, Hey, my throat feels really dry. It was because I had like a little bit more of the nitrogen dioxide. Right. Okay. But I didn't really, you don't notice it as much. Like I can, I can say from experience, you don't notice it as much if there's just like a little bit mm -hmm. that's kind of around. Mm -hmm. But if you're around it for a long amount of time, then the effects are still going to sure. be bad. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you might just not realize how much damage is being done mm -hmm. because it's not as, as strong of an effect as something like chlorine gas. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so Alice wrote the typical picture of nitrous fume poisoning was as follows. The man was exposed a short time to heavy fumes or several hours to moderately heavy fumes, which made him choke and strangle. But then in the open air, this would pass over and he would go home thinking nothing serious had happened eat his supper and go to bed. Then awaken after some hours with a sense of tightness in his chest and an increasing difficulty in breathing. When the doctor arrived, the man would be sitting up in bed, gasping and livid, using all his strength to pump air into his rapidly filling lungs. She goes on because it, it gets much worse. I, it just, I got depressed. Um, so it can get a lot worse, but in milder cases, if a person already had something like tuberculosis, mm. up the progress of the disease, right? Yeah. Um, it can cause asthma, respiratory infections, chronic lung disease. Like it's not good. So you no. don't want people breathing a bunch of nitrogen dioxide at your plants. Yeah. Picric acids also interesting um, to me, other than that, you know, it's a dye and you can be a canary, but it's apparently I'm using quotes here, easy to make. Cause you know, just mix phenol and nitric acid together, like yeah. in your shed or wherever you want. Um, so like a lot of these other plants require special equipment, not picric acid. So some very shady people would run these operations to make picric acid with very poor conditions and just really whatever. I'm envisioning meth being made in bath. Breaking bad. Yeah, me too. I'm envisioning okay. breaking bad is, yeah. is, is, is kind of what I see it. I mean, okay. I don't know. I mean, they were doing it, I guess, for the war effort, for the war effort. They were doing it to make a buck. If you could produce a lot of picric acid and sell it, I mean, that was preferable. Good, yeah. Um, so I have a feeling that a lot of these canaries that she ran into probably worked for at these places where it's like, here's this big old building and just mix all these chemicals together and just go, right? Mm -hmm. There's not the same kinds of special processing for it that okay. some of these other things would have had. So um nitrocellulose i think i mentioned this uh earlier like some of the fumes the red and orange fumes it's a material used for things like smokeless powder um which means it goes boom i didn't look up smokeless powder too much 
Um, but she's investigating these plants too. And she related how worried the workers uh, there had to be about static. Mm. She had a guy to explain that what they had to look out for was a spark from the static electricity produced by the friction of the particles. If that should happen, he said, you dash for that window and slide down. And when you hit the ground, don't look behind you. Keep right on running. And uh, so like she, did, she looked out the window. Sure enough, there's a chute going down to the ground. That if to things, me is pretty If things DA. go south, jump out the window and take the slide to the nearest field. <laughs> the mm-hmm. fact that there was a slide already there. It's like, like a plane, you know, has an emergency slide that if you need to use, you know, it's there. But like, this is just like, it's just there. They just already have a slide like, this could we're be not going to have time to deploy a slide so we're just going to set one up yeah. just in case yeah i you cannot oh, convince me like go into that plant and check out how they're doing things like no. nothing no thank you um mercury fulminate is also a pretty ba thing to investigate because it's super explosive yeah so they um because they made the charges for explosives with it so the plants built were small basically to minimize damage just everything exploded or they'd have cubicles for workers with two to three foot thick concrete walls in between. I read. Oh, go ahead. I I was, oh, it's not something I read. I lied. I remember an episode of Mythbusters, um, two BAs in science that we will definitely be covering at some point. Um, But I read, I saw an episode where there was an episode of Breaking Bad where the main character had used fulminate of mercury mm-hmm. to explode a room. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, we need to test this. But in the United States, you have to have a special license to uh. make mercury fulminate. And there mm-hmm. are like four people who can do mm-hmm. it. Like they're, they, it's, it's yeah. not like you can just get licensed. It's not like right. a liquor license where you just go apply and you get one. No, like they had to find a special person to do it he did it in secret because you can't tell anybody about it because it's yeah the worst so yeah this uh, like some of these places she would go in you had to put booties on your shoes to walk on the rubber floor because Ugh. you know back in the old days your shoes you had nails in your shoes right you yeah. didn't want your shoes to somehow create a spark oh like so you even had to like it was rubber floor with two to three foot thick concrete walls you put booties on like crazy right um, I just like the chemical itself really isn't that terrible in terms of like worker poisoning, you mm-hmm. know, like she was worried about the fumes and stuff. mercury fulminate, like you just might explode because you're just going to blow everything up. Like you'll, one explode, spark you'll explode before the fumes will kill you. Yeah. I mean, okay. you know, okay. um, great. That's, I just, that's so much better. I can't imagine working with that stuff or being a woman going like, Hey, you know what I want to do? I want to go on this plant and see how safe things are for workers. Because she wasn't just interested in in poisons and chemicals, she was interested in all the solutions. Yeah, yeah, as it came as it dealt with industrial health. But, um, you know, um, I read though that explosions at TNT plants were more common because um, it was. I think people probably weren't as afraid of it. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. like when you're in a cubicle that has two, three foot thick concrete walls and you have rubber floors, like. I feel like you feel the severity of what happens if you screw up. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. First, like a TNT plant. So um, that was a common, um, you know, problem at these plants, but also TNT poisoning was a big problem. Um, mm-hmm. Absorption through the skin um, would be bad uh, for you. So workers mm-hmm. would need to take, have access to like wash off, take off work clothes and so forth. Yeah. 
we had information from England about this problem, but <laughs> the U.S. was all like, what? I can't hear you over the sound of my TNT plant exploding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, TNT poisoning is also very bad. And if you want to be outraged about something else besides the radium girls, look up the canary girls. Oh, that nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we knew TNT poisoning was bad. Your liver and your kidneys, ironically, are mm. usually affected. You get jaundice because your liver is broken liver. Um, or anemia if it's bad exposure. Mm. And those are in addition to the usual nausea, hives and irritation to your skin, headaches, etc. So she, Alice investigated all of these compounds um, from about 1916 uh, uh, to like 1920 or whatever. She was trying to see what was going on. She was trying to make reports, recommendations. She wrote in the list of 2,432 cases of occupational poisoning in 1917. Um, 13, or no, uh, 1,389 of them were from nitrous fumes and 28 of the 53 deaths of those cases were from nitrous fumes. So it was a big problem yeah wow um, so that's all really bad but alice then did write that the positive of the increases in these industries was that doctors in these states finally started getting more interested in looking at what called uh what alice called the industrial poisons okay. so it was like this work and you mentioned this like it was world the world war one and her work like looking into world war one that really helped get the medical community interested in this because a lot of the times up to this point the doctor's like oh yeah well you're sick i don't know like alcoholism that was a that was like a common thing oh demon well, possession that guy's an alcoholic a witch. I, mean, I don't know they're they're a bunch of lazy immigrants that just like to drink i mean there, there just wasn't that interest from the medical community mm-hmm. so kind of having to get the medical community involved while also trying to just bring awareness to the industries kind of what's going on so um, I just really quickly want to mention that Alice also studied aniline oil and aniline dyes. Aniline is another nitro compound. Okay. She did actually study this to some extent when she was in the explosives work, mm-hmm. but I'm bringing it up because I'm an organic chemist and I was reading her book. She wrote that it was like such a complex problem to study aniline. And she wrote that I was thankful for the foundation Ann Arbor had given me in organic chemistry. Nice. I mean, she goes a lot to learn, but like, yay, organic chemistry. See, see all you pre-med people out there. Organic chemistry is important. The next doctor I go to who tells me, asks me, what do you do? Oh, I teach chemistry. What kind of organic chemistry? Oh, that was my least favorite class. Next doctor I go to that tells me that, I'm gonna smack him. Throat punch. No, Not really. Just but, go right, know. just throat punch. You'd be shocked at l- most all of the doctors, nurses, etc. that I, medical people that I have encountered that find out that I am an organic chemist. Like, oh, that was my least favorite class. Anyway, it it's important. Alice it said it was to, important. It happens to mathematicians too. People are like, oh, so like, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm a mathematician and I, whatever. And people are like, oh, I hate math. Did <laughs> I ask you? I don't believe I asked you your opinion on math. Did I? <sighs> it happens to mathematicians too. Yeah. Um, so, so this is why I just, this episode just was like, I know. Oh, well, like, I mean, my section was long. Your section is long. Yeah. The sound editor is like, I'm, I'm having to disassociate <laughs> like mentally from just how much I'm going to have to do to edit this episode. So you're the welcome. sound editor part of my brain, what? I said, you're welcome. Yeah. Neat. The sound so. editor is super unhappy right now with one of the 
uh podcast hosts but it's fine it's fine be- I, I, like the the sound editor has dissociated mentally from okay. anything that's going on okay. right now i mean she'll be mad later but okay. but it's okay. it's fine i'm the one who has to deal with her so. i feel like i'm only about 15 minutes over what i was supposed to be we'll see we're gonna go with that sure okay um so yeah that's uh that's what i got on alice and I guess industrial health and all kinds of all kinds of things we've learned a lot today we did I learned uh, I learned a lot I it was really really good there's so much to she did okay (laughs) she did so much let's take a break and then briefly discuss why this episode was so difficult for both of us to research mine is brief I promise mine is too how how can it not be we've already said all the things there are to say she did all the things all the things all the things all right break time well we normally talk about legacy or why we like our ba during this section and i mean i feel like it's easy to discuss both with alice but again how much more can we say because she did all the things so for me well okay there's some some things we haven't mentioned she did get a lot of recognition uh in her lifetime because of her work um and even after so on september 21st 2002 the acs the american chemical society designated alice hamilton and her work in industrial medicine a national historic chemical landmark um she was time magazine's woman of the year in 1956 um like some big things um she like I mentioned earlier like she wrote the book on industrial health and um I actually I don't know that I've really talked about it here but I used to work in industrial hygiene um in my previous job before I became a professor and so it's really interesting to me because you know I read things you know as things got developed because I did read some of the history of the development of industrial hygiene and whatever and you know the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health that's NIOSH I dealt with NIOSH regulations every day mm-hmm. and OSHA um, which we've all been hearing about OSHA but yeah. everyone knows OSHA um, but these regulatory bodies that kind of got put in place because of work like what she did and then you know however many years later here I am working in a field that I'm concerned with industrial health and industrial hygiene and stuff. So for me, it was really interesting to learn about her and learn, it was overwhelming, but to learn about kind of how things got going in the United States in this field, because it was a field I was in. So I found that really interesting um, from a personal level. Um, She was just a super interesting woman. She had a lot of things to say politically and socially and all kinds of things. Like if you read, exploring the dangerous trades. She has chapters of just like her travel to Germany, her travel to Russia, what she thought about that and what she thought about this. And the time she was tempted to become an anarchist because something was so unjust. I mean, she was just such a, she was, she had got, she had just, she would have been a very interesting woman to meet. But I just think she was a BA for being a woman in a field that one didn't really even exist. And then even when it did exist, it's not something that strikes you, especially at that time as being like a woman's job, like going into the explosives plant right? and like walking through the factory and being told, Hey, go out the slide. If we are about to explode. I mean, you just don't, and I'm not, I mean, I'm, I don't mean that to sound like she couldn't do it. It's just at that time, a woman doing that thing that goes kinds of things is just like unheard of. So 
just think she's a BA for that and for kind of what she contributed in terms of helping us understand, hey, maybe we shouldn't just poison all our workers all the time. So, you know, I think she should have fought a little bit harder for those Harvard football tickets, but you know. I, I mean, I would yeah. agree with that, but maybe she wasn't a football fan. You know, when did she have time to watch football? She was doing yeah, all true. the things and doing all the is, things, which is why my section, both of us felt like we like, okay, so here's some behind the scenes for all of you listeners out there. When you wonder like how these episodes get developed, mm-hmm. we go get our sources and we collected, we were, I know that both of us were like, wow, there's tons of sources. This is going to be easy. No. Mm-hmm. apparently there is a bell curve where mm-hmm. a few sources is horrible uh-huh. and a lot of sources is horrible yeah. about four good sources is like the perfect peak whatever and so alice wrote her own autobiography mm-hmm. and so you so that was a source that you brenna used for like mm-hmm. that was kind of your primary source well yeah, i got a whole- the dangerous trades is definitely like my main thing that I used because right. if I had gone farther to other, th- I just, it would have been too much. It that one much. book alone was like almost too much. Yeah. And, and, and so I got other sources because I needed to know from, from an outside perspective, who she was, because she was telling us who she was, but I, I needed something else. So, so her legacy is that there is no possible way a human being could ever wonder what she thought about anything ever for any reason, because she always told people and she was so nice about it. Yeah. So her superpower was being a totally, totally nice person, but also she wrote everything down, which is not common. That is, I feel yeah. like, I feel like that's not a common thing. Yeah. So, and it's, which is wonderful, but the, but the biggest part of like her legacy for me bleeds into our sources. So I'm going to start Mm -hmm. talking about sources because so her autobiography was one and it was really good. She made mention somewhere though, that there was that people, when people would criticize it, if there was criticism is that it was too formal, Mm -hmm. which she never disagreed with, but she said specifically that she wanted to write dispassionately So she wasn't accused of self-aggrandizing behavior. Mm -hmm. So, which that's totally on brand for her. No surprise there. There is another book that I read and it was, it was called A Life in Letters. And it was by uh, Barbara, probably, well, in German, you would say Zickermann, but it's Zickermann. What, what Barbara did was she, like, she agreed that, exploring the dangerous trades there there is some reticence there to be really open and whatever it's not stuffy but it it is formal I understood what was meant by that after I had read it and I don't know if you found the same thing but Barbara notes in her introduction that that Alice wrote her book when Alice was in her 70s and as much as her mom wasn't a Victorian she was. Alice was mm-hmm. raised in the Victorian Midwest. Mm-hmm. So she was very intensely private. She was just like her personality in general. She was intensely private. So, so Barbara starts doing, wanting to do research and she goes to this relative of Alice's house and they're like, oh yeah, her papers are in there. 
And by in there, they mean this vault, cavernous vault of all, like the book that I read of the compiled letters was like two inches thick. And it wasn't all, it wasn't all of her writing. Oh my gosh. So yeah. So, so Barbara went and got all of these letters and, and so, and in these letters, she got to know the real Alice and who Mm. she really was. And so her, she quote, her quote was that people said that she had a little of the devil in her. Oh, so yeah. So apparently, which you don't, you, and you don't get this sense from her autobiography, but from her letters, which I read to kind of supplement my writing. Well, cause where she was like, those dudes gave it to charity. I went to Mexico, drinks y'all. Mm-hmm. Like that was, that was actually pretty, that was more of her personality than the way mm-hmm. she wrote her autobiography. Mm-hmm. So she was really sassy, like super mm-hmm. sass, queen sass and very witty. And she had a, and, and she was engaging and she was self-deprecating and irreverent and all these other really endearing qualities that were part of what made her the Tinkerbell of industrial mm-hmm. medicine, where she just would like flit like a fairy around to these places and sprinkle some magic dust and everything was fine. Like that, it really kind of was that easy for her but you wouldn't know it from reading hmm. from reading the autobiography. It's like, well, yeah, she's a Victorian woman who taught at Harvard. Yep, mm-hmm. sure is. Seems lovely though. But then you read the letters and it's, you know, the back and forth with her sisters is, uh, mm. there's a lot of that in there. It's, they're really cool. It's a really, so I, I liked having both of those books because it helped mm-hmm. me figure out who she really was as a person, which was yeah. like, she would have been, definitely a person that you would want to go out to dinner with not tea mm. you want to go to dinner with her a full meal gotcha. like you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. so so yeah so my recommendation is that if you are going to read her autobiography which I do recommend because it, it was very easy to read did you find it easy to read because I did mm, yes and no I don't know you didn't have to read any of the science stuff that's true. The stuff about her like life outside of science was very easy to get through. I didn't read the whole thing because it's, again, it's a three inch thick yeah. book. Um, but either way, I recommend reading her life in letters with mm. it. Yeah. So I think that's the best way to get the, the full picture of the kind of BA that Alice was. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So besides those two books, though, my other sources were, um, I read something by Madeline P. Grant called Alice Hamilton, Pioneer Doctor in Industrial Medicine, mm. which was basically, she took her autobiography oh. and condensed it to like a couple hundred pages versus okay. 700. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, it was, there was a children's book, hmm. juvenile book called The Worker's Detective by Stephanie Sammartino McPherson. And it was really cool because it talked about going and talking to the people who were sick and when mm-hmm. she had to run away from in the, um, the acid factory and like talked about those kind of things. And so it was mm-hmm. really, it was a really good like vignette of, of Alice's life. So though, and of course, Wikipedia, you know, mm-hmm. um, but those were my sources. I honestly, I mean, Exploring the Dangerous Trades is pretty much my my source. I have a variety of, and I'm not going to read them all out, variety of like smaller articles, um, but they were mostly to get a little bit more, more context, like history of lead poisoning in the world or, you know, lead poisoning, historical aspects, blah, 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 blah. So um, 
just kind of a bunch of random sources because yeah. I really did kind of just take it straight from the horse's mouth. I mean, yeah. I felt like I could learn a lot about what she actually did, but just reading. This, so. this is the first time we've had an autobiography, I think like an actual dedicated autobiography. Like we've had things that they have written. Maybe it is. This might be the first time we've had an autobiography. I hated no, it. I hope we'd ever have no, it again. No, it made, no. this episode was so hard to read about, so hard to write about. I would no. like to never have another person with an autobiography. A person next week. Oh yeah, that's right. Well, we already have one next, next episode. It's true. Part of your teaser. This yeah. person also has an autobiography. Do you want to, do you want to tease? Yeah, sure. The, yeah. Um, I like to do song references, but you know, I, I don't know all the songs in the world. So just in case you're wondering if I just, you know, actually knew this, I didn't, I Googled it, but in the words of Lonnie Donegan, RBA next week, he's a gambling man. He is. So we've got a guy who used his brilliant math mind to be good at gambling. Among was, other things, I'm sure we'll find out more. I don't really, you know, know as much, but I just feel like my math should be a little spicy so I can get behind this, I think. Oh, there is, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm very excited about our next episode. Next week's episode is going to be I, easier to research for me than this one, but this is, you know? and I, I'll say this now without, it won't ruin it, but very, I think never in the history of our short history of our podcast, have we had someone where the math that he is famous for is something that I didn't have to look up because I understood all of it. Normally I have Ooh. to like do a little background research, like, oh, is this connected to this? And how, how can I break this down? How can I explain this? Mm-hmm. Nope, not this time. Oh. All the things that I need to talk about, I was like, I know what this is. And I, I, it was, and I think that made my research go faster. So Yes. Yeah. He was an interesting person and uh, there's not as much written about him, which, you know, like we said, it gets easier in some ways and not, but there's at least less information to try to sort through. So yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be good. It'll be great. It'll be fun. And I have some problems this week. The sound editor very much is looking forward to dealing with the the sound editor will not hate me next week. Yes. Or, or me. Like I said, the, so, the sound editor ha- is in a dissociative state right now. It's fine. It's fine. So, all right. Do you have anything else for this week? Nope. All right. Then until next week, live dangerously, do science. <laughs>